Hello, and welcome back once again to the Inquisitor podcast with me, Marcus Kauke. Today, my guest is Harris Kenny. He's the founder of Intro CRM. Basically, they're a sales agency. They're sales mercenaries. They go out, they do inbound, they do outbound for clients. And today, we're going to spend some time exploring what works in inbound and outbound. We're going to be looking at some commonly avoided or unasked questions. Like, for example, is anyone actually following up on all the damn leads that we've generated? Are we asking too many qualification questions? Are we asking selfish qualification questions so the customer has no reason to take the conversation any further? Who knows? And then we're going to look into a couple of the blind spots that you're probably falling into because they're very common. Blind spots around, um, do you have the right infrastructure? You're squandering opportunities through lack of discipline, attention, poor systems, lack of imagination. Uh, are you looking where the money is actually coming from? Um, are you spending time on the wrong or the right things? So, Harris, welcome. Hi, thanks for having me. Excited to catch up. It's a pleasure. So, um, would you mind giving the audience 60 seconds on your history, background, so people understand where you're coming from? Absolutely. I've been in sales for about 12 years. I've worn a lot of different hats. I started at the real bottom of the bottom of the heap, which is doing cold calling, uh, unpaid cold calling through an internship with the economic development organization. So it was basically a nonprofit and uh, went from there. So I've worn account executive hats. I've hired and managed sales teams in 2019. I went out on my own to do fractional sales consulting. And so it's been almost four years now. And I've worn a few different hats since starting the business. We've pivoted the business model a few different times, but fundamentally I've been trying to figure out how can you provide sales as a service to people. And, you know, initially it was advisory services. I went through a stint of trying to build some software and long story short, wasn't able to figure that out. And then pivot into more of a productized service model, which we've been doing now for almost two years. And I feel like getting better every day, every week, every month, I feel like we've made a lot of progress on the service side and learned a lot. And, you know, frankly, we're a small team. We don't really have tons of resources to serve tons of clients. We really just have a handful of clients that we work with and try to bring excellent sales practice to them. And otherwise just trying to learn, you know, I'm in a bunch of Slack and WhatsApp groups and I go on LinkedIn, always trying to figure out what we can do better because that's basically what people expect us to bring when we work with them. So are you offering a rent, a buy or a rent to buy service? So we have a couple ways that people work with us right now, and this has changed a lot. But one thing that we've been playing around with recently has been the sort of a single campaign outbound setup where we'll build all the infrastructure to run cold outreach that's setting up multiple domains, multiple email addresses per domain, DNS configuration, some list building verification, and then running them out. And just basically people can see our process and in general, how we think about sales. Because on the inbound side, It's a lot more involved. I mean, we're getting a user account set up and we're working within a CRM, typically HubSpot, and getting an account set up, creating copy, creating templates. It's pretty involved. It can take, just like it would take to ramp up an SDR. But what we find is a lot of times just totally a lack of process. So a a third thing that I've been playing around with lately has been like a sales process audit where we can kind of come in and flag, look, this is best practices that, you know, our, our clients are typically 25 to 100 employees. So they're not mega big companies, but they're big enough that they've got dedicated salespeople. And so just identifying gaps where 
companies that get from 25 to 100 up to a couple hundred, up to a thousand employees, they tend to do these things. So this is something I'm playing around with, but it's not been formalized yet into a service. So right now people try out maybe on the outbound side or they believe in the vision on the inbound side and they're just sick of hiring reps because there's a lot of turnover. And so they just want to hand it off to somebody. <laughs> well, I'm really curious to get your take on the way you see the market going because I'm seeing the arms race when it comes to tech and data. I'm seeing salary inflation going through the roof. And what's interesting is people don't seem to pay much attention to revenue per employee because that doesn't really seem to factor into uh, most of the business models. And so they're focused on things like dial rates, number of emails, uh, you know, response rates, but very, very few of the metrics I'm seeing are actually focused on did that bring in income? And almost no one is able to track back from the income actually coming into your account back to what the sources were through the stories that you've been feeding to your prospects. So you know, which funnels, um, which messages, uh, which rep, which data, which combination of technology. And it's now possible to do that so that you can identify where the real income comes from. And I'm very excited about that because I was talking to another person in a similar space to yours. Um, they do an outbound and he's spending 20 grand a year on the technology stack and the data for his reps. Now it's quite a sophisticated setup, obviously, but how can an SME hope to manage to keep up? Yeah, I mean, there's a lot of good points in there. I think that there's a couple of things I'll touch on. So first, when it comes to revenue attribution, and, and I think this is the most important thing, you need to be able to attribute your marketing activities ultimately to generating revenue. We have a podcast called the Pipeline Meeting Podcast, and it's where marketers come to talk about sales. We've had a, quite a few marketers on there who embrace the idea of having revenue targets, for example. And they talk really explicitly about how that's important to them. The other thing that that's going to require is not just systems in place, but just caring, just like from the get go, do you as a marketer, and if you're higher in the funnel, higher in funnel responsibility role, do you just agree that that's part of your job? <laughs> because a lot of times I would say that there's like the brand marketer folks or product marketer folks who they just, they don't really necessarily want that accountability downstream. They don't necessarily see that as part of their job, which is fine. But, but I think that that's going to be a ceiling for people who want to grow within an organization and take on more responsibility. If you don't take on that mantle, at some point, somebody else will, because it is more stressful to do that, but somebody else will. And then they're ultimately going to be responsible for budget because that's the whole point of the budget is that you allocate it towards things you think are going to generate a return. And if you don't want to think about the return, then you shouldn't be allocating the budget in the first place. <laughs> you know, And that's fine. It's not for everybody. It doesn't need to be for everybody. It doesn't need to be everyone's job, but for the people who do that, then they should be in charge of the purse strings, I think. And the second party question was, okay, well, now we, we have this money. How much should we be spending? How can smaller teams and companies compete with these inflating costs of salary, but also cost of tools? It's interesting because I've definitely seen changing models from these providers. So you have on the sales side, you have like multiple levels of this stack from you know your CRM, but then you're talking about like data providers, the secondary tools like verifying emails, testing copywriting, you know, like a lavender.ai would do. Um, and then you have the the warm-up and the sending tools and things like that. 
I found that unfortunately you kind of have to learn the hard way. I mean, we've spent very <laughs> painful amounts of money on the past on data and we've since really restructured that. And, you know, we're spending, I'm happy to talk about specific tools. I don't want to necessarily knock any players because whatever, but I could just say like, we've found ways to reduce spend in, in categories by as much as 90% in terms of what we're doing, but it requires being always following updates and learning from new people and willing to change your tech stack if you find something that works better. So we had like a five-figure all stuff there. This I think is really important that it seems that a lot of the technology purchasing has been driven by fear of missing out because you see a competitor has it and you don't want to miss out. So you buy that. And what's happened is this technology stack has grown and grown and grown and it's become terribly complex and it creates friction. One of my clients has recently had to uh, build a dashboard um, so that the, each day their reps are saving two and a half hours per rep. Wow. And um, because th that's how much time they were spending jumping from one system to another. Oh. Now, that's two and a half hours of prospecting time. That's two and a half hours of time spent in front of the customer. And I think often what happens is as people invest in the technology, there is no structure to it. It's this is the next big thing. And I really would love it if sales leaders and finance would sit down together with marketing and actually think ahead. They plan where is the business going to be in two years time for us to accomplish those outcomes? What do we, what's that runway look like? What do we need to do in order to accomplish that level of growth and to be able to make those investments? And I don't think there is enough planning. There's nowhere near enough reflection. And people have thrown money and bodies and technology at the problem, and there's not enough thought. Yep. And I'll throw, I'll throw another department in there just to make it more complicated, which is IT. I mean, if you've got marketing... And in sales and, and finance to the table, but IT is not there. I've seen, oh, I talked to a startup who venture back startup, unicorn, you know, all that running off of seven domains, but they had open rates as low as 15% on some of these campaigns that their SDRs and excuse me, that their BDRs were running. If you have an open rate of 15%, chances are nobody senior emails. They're all landing in spam. And they had people who were running emails off of the main domain for the company. So, and, and those were the ones that had the highest open rates and, and the best performance because they were sort of drafting off of all the other marketing and all the other transactional emails running on the main domain, you know, example.com or whatever. But, you know, people just say, oh, more, you know, they have a model of, okay, we're going to contact X number of leads, you know, Y conversion rate, Z number of opportunities, whatever, just jam more leads into the top and then say, oh, well, we, now we need to pay for a higher tier with our data provider to get another 5,000 contacts a month. And then we need to upgrade our sequencing tool to send another 10,000 emails a month. But I mean, if they're all landing in spam, who cares? You know, what do you, it, <laughs> uh, you know, what's the point? Well, there's 1.2 quadrillion emails sent out every year. That was 2020. So it's got, will have gone up since then. Um, and most of them, are just ending up being blocked. So big challenge, because there big are an awful lot of people in sales who don't pick up the phone and don't proactively go out and build relationships and networks, and they're overly dependent on either social or email. 
And Google seems to be really locking down on email. So fewer and fewer are getting through. Not surprised at all that that's on your radar. I think a lot of people might be surprised by that, but Google is definitely clamping down on this. They're changing the rules for the API access. So you've got people who are just like spamming the same email over and over and over again. They're just like going to be toast. But then you've got people who are using a certain set of warming tools that are, I guess, more, I'll say like more rudimentary or more basic. They're also, I think, going to get swept up in this. I think the email landscape is going to look very different over the next six months. Because that's not anymore. I know. Well, you see the emergence of something like gated coming up where people are saying, okay, well, I'm just going to take all the emails I get and shuffle them over to the side and look at them later and make people pay to get into my inbox. <laughs> that That's an indication that something is not working. Excuse me, that something is not working. <laughs> yeah, I've been making about 500 a day that way. <laughs> okay, we're seeing the decline in access through email. Apple is doing funny things with the Pixel. So you're no longer going to be able to use that type of data. So the landscape's changed dramatically, and it's going to be significantly different. There's going to be a lot of people whose skill sets are no longer relevant because they just can't use them anymore. So how are you approaching your outbound and inbound emotions through omni-channel? Mm-hmm. Yeah, that's a great question. The first thing that we're doing is getting a lot more sophisticated with email. So I don't think that any of these channels are necessarily going to go away, but I do think they're changing. Mm-hmm. Our email effort, which is where most of our activity happens right now, is just getting a lot more technical. So like. What we're recommending for clients, and, and you know anybody could take this and run with it, is setting up multiple domains. So I'll just like give a few, you know, some some numbers, just kind of people can jot down what what we're hearing in terms of best practice. Basically, you don't want to send more than fifty emails per day from any single email account. And I'm by the way, I'm going to talk about where Omnichannel fits into this next. But, but I think is fundamentally, that, are these marketing emails or communication? Sales. These are communication sales, like one to one, not a marketing one to many. That's a great follow-up with like a MailChimp or something like that. But this would be like from an individual rep's inbox, right? Okay. You don't want to send more than 50 a day. And that's total. That's including both warm-up and campaign emails. So what that means is that you need to add more domains and you need to add more inboxes. Increasingly, what we're starting to see, and uh, there's a guy named Jesse uh, Ouellette on LinkedIn, who I recommend following. He talks about this a lot, but we're increasingly seeing that providers are, are preferencing people who contact them from a a like provider. So if I use Outlook and you email me from Outlook, more likely to connect. If I use Gmail, you use Gmail, more likely to connect. So, you know, it's becoming more and more of an IT initiative where you're spinning up, let's just say three, five, 10 domains with one to two email addresses per domain. And so each of those is sending a very low number of emails and the emails that are being sent are optimized for deliverability, excuse me. So that means like fewer than 50 words, no links, no images, scanning for words that are likely to be problematic that would come up in a, in a filter. And ugly spelling mistakes, ugly spelling mistakes. Yeah. Basic (laughs) stuff. Right. And really focusing on relevance and where increasingly, and this is where Omnichannel comes in. Increasingly what I'm seeing is that tools like clay are allowing so the old school way, like going back would be like, you would buy access to like a Dun and Bradstreet or something like that. And then eventually all those tools went digital. 
but they were replicating the old model. And so you have these different types of providers that are kind of siloed, single database providers or something like a seamless.ai, which has doesn't have a database, but instead they're doing these dynamic lookups. But you still have the siloed data. And so what I'm seeing increasingly is people are stitching across data sets now. So they'll use something like Clay to hit Apollo, scrape LinkedIn, check built with, run a custom Google scraping search, maybe do some additional web scraping to get more composite, richer profile of the prospects, which then gives you not only multiple points of relevance for reach outreach, but it can also give you those multiple, you know, here's their LinkedIn profile. I'm going to individually maybe contact them on sales navigator. Here's a phone number. I'm going to give them a phone call. So it's, it's writing better email by changing how you do it a little bit and then using some of these other tools to get multiple ways of getting in touch with folks. You know, frankly, I've seen direct mail, some really, really innovative people, Miles Veth, who I follow on LinkedIn, he's great. Uh, you know, he talks about how they've used direct mail within their agency using email to pop open the door and then basically an opt-in physical thing that they'll send to prospects. And he's posted some really incredible stories about that. So I think there's a lot of room for creativity. It's just, you know, you it's just you you can't just use scripts from five years ago and think you'll be fine. <laughs> Well, definitely. I mean, uh, I see so many organizations fighting the last war and mm. the next one. Exactly. And what worked in the past isn't necessarily going to work in the future. That said, some fundamental principles still remain. Uh, yep. The first one is that relationships still actually sell. And if the relationship is built on trust and familiarity and consistency and reliability, then you have trust. And the challenge is to make sure that you are not creating unnecessary friction. Because I remember a quote from Dan Kennedy that I read about 20 years ago, which is the problem with free marketing is the price you pay is all the people who will never do business with you. Yep. And there's a lot of that. There are a lot of organizations who uh, have bothered me so much that those people are on a, a, you know, a list that I would reluctantly engage with, if ever. Yeah. So my, my question is this, if we were to apply the same skills and the same technology and the same rigor and discipline that we do to the cold market, but this time instead trying to attract the hot market, i.e. people who are already engaged with your uh, prospective customer and are known and trusted, wouldn't we end up with a much better set of outcomes? Absolutely. These tactics are, this is like, these cold tactics are the hardest way to grow a business. You know, you're interrupting people by design, you're creating something out of nothing, really. If you take these practices, especially around copywriting, especially around trying to create value, developing a good offer, and then apply them to leads where someone met you at a trade show, came into your website and downloaded something, maybe saw you participating in a Slack community and reached out and direct messaged you to, to learn more about what you do. I mean, you blow other sales teams out of the water because you will have deconstructed the process so much so that when you when you come into them, I mean, you know, one example, Catherine Caldwell, she talks a lot about video prospecting and she has really good content around how to do video prospecting. And you know, you use these tools and you enrich records and you get a, a new lead to exactly the right person very quickly. You know, you use all this to have a rep qualify a lead and book a meeting so that they're speaking to the exact right account executive within a week. 
I just tell you, I've seen it directly. I've seen it in our clients, HubSpot client records. I personally, I, I jump in, I take tickets all the time. You see, it's like refreshing. People are like, oh my gosh, you're actually answering my questions. It feels like you actually know something about our business. I'm happy to hop on a call. I'd be happy to share more information about what we do. It feels like you're paying any attention to me at all and not just, <laughs> you know, wanting me to do all the work or or putting me through this painful process that's based on how you want to sell, not now how I want to buy. Let's unpack that a little bit um, because almost no sales training in certainly in-house uh, within product companies does anything like that because they spend very little time having customers, if any, involved in the training. And uh, almost none of their initial work is interviewing recent customers who've recently flipped from a competitor or mm. customers who've left and understanding why they've uh, dropped you or identifying how and why people are using your product in an unusual or anomalous way. All of this opens up unmet demand. And I don't see a lot of sales organizations doing anything like that. And this is where I think there's a real home for organizations like yours in terms of really going to town and speaking to the customers and helping them to um, understand what customers actually use the product for. Because it's not more often than not, it's not what marketing thinks it is. Absolutely. You know, it's interesting. There's so many, I think, missed opportunities around learning more. Because the problem is, whose job is it? You know, so often what I'm finding is marketing is like, that's not my job. And sales is like, that's not my job. And frankly, both of them are kind of right. It does sort of fit. You know, people talk about the gap between sales and marketing, sales and marketing alignment and all that. I mean, the reality is, strictly speaking, that if you look at the metrics that most sales organizations are measured on and the metrics that most marketing organizations are measured on, these types of things that we're talking about don't fall into that neatly. And it's just not going to come up in a weekly meeting. It's not going to come up in a quarterly meeting or an annual meeting. And so there is a lot that falls between the cracks. I think it's just structural problems. And where I like to say people start is just working from the end of the pipeline or the bottom of the funnel and working up and just trying to find opportunities that are in progress where there's missed the closest to revenue impact that you can have in terms of making a case for thinking more broadly about revenue and go to market in general. For example, I think most people overlook the responsibility of who's responding to contact forms or pricing forms. They just see it as something that can be easily automated, entry level job, hire someone out of college or, or didn't go to college or whatever, just earlier in their career. And the problem is that is that that person may not notice patterns. We had a customer who had like three inquiries in one day mentioning a specific competitor. And so it was just like, okay, what is going on? Why are these three prospects mentioning this competitor? What's what's the deal? And so we followed up with them and the prospects each explained in different ways, basically that the competitor had increased their prices by 8X because they had been acquired by a private equity firm. And, you know, surprise, surprise, X number of years later, they need to get that money back. And so they, they increased the prices significantly. And uh, so we immediately ran an outbound campaign targeting users of that competitor software saying, hey, you know, notice that this came up. We've had companies reaching out to us. If you're just thinking about the tools you're using and you want to understand what's out there, happy to talk. And it was great. Got really positive replies. People were actually very happy to hear because they had been wanting to look into their options anyway, just being hit with that type of price increase. And, um, you know, it's little things like that where if you don't have the infrastructure in place, you can't be nimble 
That's, that's the kind of thing where in passing, maybe an SDR says to their manager, hey, a few people mentioned competitor X and then nothing happens. Or maybe they post about it in Slack or someone sees in a Slack channel, you know, new form submissions and the marketer looks at it and says to themselves like, oh, you know, we should, uh, we should maybe reach out to those people and then they put like a task in Asana or Trello or whatever and then, and then kind of forget about it. Maybe they run a paid ad campaign but the thing is with the tools that are available on the sales side, you can target and build a list of 250 people or whatever and land in their inbox with if you're if you're doing the stuff we were talking about earlier and get response rates. I mean, we and, and folks that I uh, sort of fellow misfits and, and pirates that do this kind of stuff, you know, I know people that are getting response rates of 25, 50, 60 percent response rates on certain campaigns if the triggers and signals are right. So it's possible. So if we're going to evolve the way our customers need us to, we've got to meet them where they are. Yes. And they have access to the most information about pretty much everyone in your space that they will ever have had. They have choice. And yet very often where salespeople are not involved in helping them to reach their final decision, the churn rates are massively higher. Um, And it's because the buyer didn't have an opportunity to have their questions answered, their anticipated buyer's remorse put to bed. So what do we have to do to change as a profession so that we are more valuable to our prospects and that they see us as their ally, not their enemy, and not as someone who's self-serving. Yeah. There's a statistic that I see people talk about, which is that buyers spend as little as 5% talking to salespeople during the buying cycle You know, these days. And I think your background, especially understanding buying research, market research, and the, the process by which people buy. It's like, so if if buyers are spending less time talking to us, how are we spending our time as sellers, as salespeople? (laughs) Are are we just spending more time trying to make conversations happen? Or are we reallocating some of our time to do more research on the market, to do more research on our ICP and their pain points and spending time where they spend time I think that good sellers are doing that. Good sellers aren't just saying, okay, well, I, w- I should have in, a, in a, 10 years ago or whatever, I would have had X number of hours a week talking to prospects. Now that's down. I'm going to replace that time by just ripping lists off of a single database provider, loading them into a sequencer and see what happens. And then manually moving data around back and forth between things. Or I think we could take some of that time and do research understand where the buyers are coming from, understand their process so that when they come to us, we can actually be a trusted advisor. And I think the other part is doing research about how they operate and then doing better research on building better lists, better intent, better signals, moving up funnel in terms of outreach and and not trying to jump right to a 30 minute meeting right away, but instead sharing information that people might find interesting so that you can connect with them on LinkedIn and, and then have that longer relationship built over time. That those are the two ways that I think that salespeople are evolving. And I feel like on top of their game, those are the two things they're doing. They're understanding their customer more and then they're rethinking what it looks like to sell and that it's not just booking a meeting to, to try to get a demo to try to close a deal that month or whatever. 
as the tech stacks become more sophisticated, more complex, the challenge will be that customers don't want one necessarily one throat to choke. Uh, What they really want is the best solution for now and the future. And ideally, what they want is one throat to choke that they trust, uh, who understands all of it. So uh, my question is this, um, how do you see the market changing, certainly within technology? Because I think that what customers want is to have the right solution, and it may be made up of a dozen different vendors, but they don't want to have to deal with a dozen different vendors. And I think there's going to be a big shift in the way sales is to, um, or companies go to market because of the stuff we talked about earlier, the salary escalation, um, the arms race in tech and data and the costs associated with that, um, the level of sophistication of buyers. Um, I'm curious what sort of landscape you see for the future of sellers. Yeah. Well, I think things like channel sales, partner-led sales, I think are going to be increasingly important where you're going to have the salesperson coming to a customer anticipating what types of integrations they may want, what types of workflows they may have and saying, you know, not only am I aware that you want these two tools to talk to each other, we can support that. And here's how, you know, or here's some drawbacks or here's an extra thing that you're not using today that you might want to add in order to make the most of these things working together. And I think that channels and partners are ways that I'm, I'm seeing people not just, work around, but actually resolve those objections where a customer very fairly is saying, a buyer very fairly is saying, how is this going to work with what I'm doing today? I get, okay, I'm sold on the vision. I get how you're saying that the X is changing. Great. But I'm spending, my team is spending all their time doing this a certain way today. How the heck are these things going to come together? And it's very fair that someone would ask that, (laughs) you know? And this is part of the problem because I see so many vendor organizations forget that the customers have their own agenda and it's not to make your share price um, valuation bump this quarter. They're trying to get a job done. And the irresponsible and cavalier way that so many vendor organizations approach their customers, um, is it any wonder that they don't trust us? Whereas with partners, more often than not, you know, they've been working with them for dozens of years. They've put their systems in. They've grown with them over many years. They've uh, they've got intimacy, familiarity. And I think that's been massively lost over the last 40 years. Relationships actually do sell. Relationships work. To give you an example, the ecosystem that I've been pulling together with 100 of my closest friends, you know, we've been able to get eight meetings out of eight attempts. Wow. And they're all senior directors in HubSpot, in Salesforce, in Danaher. I mean, these are big organizations and they're giving us two hours. And basically it was a car crash of uh, a request. We've never worked together. We've got no idea if this is going to work out. Give us two hours. Uh, We're going to spend two hours with you and your brightest minds working on your most difficult problem. At the end of it, you get a report. Uh, You can do whatever you like with it. You can ignore it and sit on a shelf. Um, you can do it yourself. Uh, you can bring in a consultancy, or if you think that we're um, up for the up to scratch, uh, then talk to us. But what wow. we really want is feedback. Now, because the person who created the introduction was trusted by both vendor and buyer, the resistance was next to nothing. 
Yeah. I mean, it was nothing. You know, six of these were mine and two were from other people. Um, and literally, it's rip your arm off. Now, now, in order to make a sales cycle like that work, I mean, it must be a high ticket item, right? No, not necessarily. No. I mean, it, it can be. Or it could, it has, a, it has the potential to be, right? It can, but again, it doesn't have to be. Because when you mm -hmm. think about the ecosystem that the customer occupies, they have specific needs. And those needs can be met by several different vendors. And I, I think our job is to pull together the best that we uh, can find available to us and uh, work together and sell, uh, co-sell. You know, what's really interesting about this is the potential to co-sell at scale. You know, imagine coordinating 80 or 100 of these partners to target the same company simultaneously, all armed with the same questions. And then they come back, having spoken to different job functions, different geographies, different divisions, and get a snapshot of a business. You know, we can get 400 hours of research done in a month, and it's cost no one more than four hours of their life. Now, that's kind of cool. It's very cool. I think that I think it speaks to how much the landscape is changing because I think you do have partners and folks who can coordinate better than ever before. You know, I think a lot of times people just used to operate from a silo. Sales was a real siloed thing, but I do feel like that's changing. Well, that's partly because uh, the alphas got to the end of uh, the wealth of nations where Adam Smith says, don't divide the labor up because it's dehumanizing and won't work in the long run. That, I think, is coming full circle as well. And interestingly enough, I'm seeing more and more organizations having uh, marketing and SDRs and AEs and CS and products sitting together um, yeah. and working as pods. Now, the real value, I think, and this is really interesting, because everyone focuses on the new business and cold. Um, I think the real value is in the CS data. You, you play a lot in uh, HubSpot. And um, those people speak to customers all day, every day. Salespeople speak to customers maybe three minutes a day. <laughs> and it just doesn't make any sense to me why people are so fixated on cold new business other than uh, the leadership come from cold new business and direct. Yep. Yep. Yeah. I think there's huge, huge, huge opportunities in those customer success conversations, all that data that gets lost to upsell, to cross-sell, to get referred to new buyers. Um, you know, it's, you've done so much work to get into that point. The incremental or marginal effort required to grow that relationship or to get a referral to someone new, it's so much less effort than is required to build something from scratch. It, it just boggles belief. That yeah, there's I mean, so much time, effort, money, resource on what is largely... A wasted activity. Yeah, I think that, you know, having worked with a number of companies over the years, I think that a lot of people who see, in my experience, when they say they want to do net new outreach, if it's an earlier stage company, they have this belief that they've figured it out and they just need to get in front of more people. <laughs> and my experience is a lot of times that is not the case. And We've sometimes it is. A warehouse full of this product, it sells itself. Can you help us shift a few? <laughs> yeah, we just need some eyeballs. Sometimes, sometimes that's true. And I think that people hear case studies and stories of companies that scaled in that way. And they think, oh, why, why not me? Why can't I do that? And it's like, well, 
it's complicated. There's a lot of reasons why a certain tactic works in a certain way at a certain time. And it, it just doesn't always translate, you know? So if you have the capacity to be able to work out where every cent of revenue came from through tech stack, through combination of technologies, through data, through the rep, how would you apply that? Well, if I'm thinking long-term, I think I'm using that to drive social selling and content creation opportunities. And I'm, and I'm using that, if I'm thinking really long-term, I'm thinking about my product roadmap. Like I think at the end of the day, if you really force me to answer in the long run, I believe that good products make good companies. I actually don't think that good sales teams make good companies per se in the long run. I think sales is important and can bridge gaps and can create new opportunities. But I think in the long run, people buy good products from companies that make good products. That's my bias. And uh, so if you had that level of attribution and that level of understanding of your buyer and their and their pain, I would say, you know, the, the, the longest time horizon would be investing that money back into products so that you can, when those people encounter those situations, it's just sort of a no brainer for them to, to go with your solution. But then sort of trying to pull that return forward a little bit, better marketing, and then, and then having them come to the sales team so that when they interact with sales, that the sales people, people talk about gap selling and consultative selling and solution selling and these different methodologies. But I think very few organizations really fulfill that meet, meet the goal, rise to the, to the occasion. The, the, the challenge with all of those systems and yeah, I, I um, spent 16 years in one franchise and you know, a huge fan of having a good system. But the problem that I see with that is that everyone is focused on the technique and doing a move. And that then turns the sale into a manipulation because you're trying to bend someone to your will. And buyers don't respond well to that. No matter how good you think you are, you've got 3 billion years of evolutionary hardwiring wrapped up against you that can smell a threat. And most salespeople represent a threat at some point in the sale, which is why their conversion rates are so appallingly piss poor. And you look at the conversion rate at final stage, and people are happy with one in three or one in four. I mean, you've just spent probably a thousand dials to get to that stage, if it's a, you know, even a mid-ticket item. And you've spent months of your life getting it to that point. Then you blow three and four. And so what flabbergasts me is how often we see motions in sales, marketing, management that have failure rates north of 85, 95%. Yeah. And the question isn't going through their head, is there a better way? It's how can we do more of this shit that doesn't work at all well? <laughs> what the fuck? I mean, seriously, who came up with the idea that doubling down on a 97% failure rate is a good use of anybody's effort or time or money? Yeah. Yeah, I think it's just chasing the dream, chasing the... The idea that, okay, well, we're going to figure it out eventually and we just need to keep throwing more at it. And then eventually the music stops. I think a lot of companies are grappling with that now. Where growth you know, wasn't the objective. Because every everyone, I mean, I've, I've been teaching people for the last 20 years. Chief executives have one thing on their job description, grow. And it sounds grand and it's a fine <laughs> idea. But what if growth wasn't the objective? What building a really rock solid, profitable, 
business that people love to come to work for and customers love to recommend because they derive massive value uh, from the outcomes you help them to deliver. What if that was the purpose of a business? Yeah, I think that's where you know it comes down to different uh, different people are playing different games. You know, I think a lot of venture back companies it is go big or go home. You know, it's not necessarily in this economy. It yeah, you, I mean it, you you end up with a lot of people going home. Yeah, <laughs> you know, you end it's, up with a lot of people going home. Well, what a waste! What I mean, the human tragedy that this is happening. Uh, and yeah, there must have been what sixty to one hundred thousand jobs gone in SaaS in the last couple of months, easily. And these are companies that the funds are awash with cash. So, that what value are they really bringing? It, I can't. I see why it works for the VC fund or the private equity fund, but it doesn't seem to work for most people. So, why would founders sign away? a death warrant that gives them an eight an eight to nine uh, out of 10 chance of not making it through this alive in terms of their business and yeah. probably losing their shit or their house. Yeah, it depends, right? I mean, that, that I think people get drawn in by that chance of one or two out of 10. I mean, there are companies every once in a while that do just massively outperform. Like, yeah, but that's 3%, Harris. It's very few. And I think a lot of people, I think to me, the challenge from a sales perspective is like, if you're a sales professional, you're a sales leader, you, you have to realize that you are playing that game, but you are on a different part of the roster than maybe the founder is. And if you're a service provider for those companies, you're on a different part of the roster. You know, you win the Super Bowl and you're the quarterback, you're the hero. But if you're the punter, probably nobody's ever, nobody talks about you and hears about you. You, you get much less reward or you win, the, you know, you, you, you win a world cup and you're the striker or the forward or whatever that scores the goal. You're the hero, you know, but if you're the third, third person on the bench, you know, people don't talk about you. So I think that if given that this is the environment, this is part of the ecosystem to me as a sales leader, as a sales rep or whatever, then your job is to, again, it comes back to everything we were talking about before, which is understanding the market, realizing that there are going to be some of those companies that really are onto something. And your job is to figure out which are the ones that are really onto something. Either way, your job is the same. Understand the customer, try to do a better job selling, you know, all this stuff, stuff we were talking about earlier. But go like one layer down further and think like, if this isn't working, maybe, maybe you're one more round of outreach before you crack the code, or maybe, you know, before anybody else that this company isn't onto something and that you should move on, you know, mm -hmm. because you're wasting your talents and efforts and abilities trying to make something work where, sorry, this is the eight or nine out of 10. And it's just not gonna, they're not, they're not onto something, but, but, you know, we've had, you know, we have a client where like their competitors, multiple competitors acquired by private equity firms. And there's all this consolidation happening in their market and customers are just like, so frustrated, just really, really angry and upset. And so, you know, I'm experiencing this moment in supporting this client where it's lining up, like it's happening. People like are ecstatic to be getting cold email literally because they are, don't, don't know how to get out of these predicament that they're in where their prices are going by, up by 8X or whatever. So my whole perception on sort of what it is that we're doing here is shifted where I think initially we talk about how the investors are the ones who are allocating capital but another, I think, very important player in this game is salespeople who allocate their skill, talent, ability, and time. And they get to decide which company, who's, which is the, what's the easiest thing to sell? 
who has the biggest problem, you know, where, where your job is easier. Like basically if you're in a go-to-market function, your job shouldn't be that hard. If it feels like it's that hard, you, maybe the company's a problem <laughs> in my opinion. Or, or the product isn't, you know, a good fit. Yeah. The product's not a good fit. Timing's not right. Like who knows, right? It's, 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 it's not even necessarily anyone's fault. Sometimes it's just a great idea that's too early or something. Who knows, you know? Or maybe it's just the wrong geography. Maybe if you're selling that same thing two countries over, you'd be rich. I don't know, you know? I, I think there's a, a big problem here, though, because many organizations are blindsided um, mm -hmm. because of the overemphasis of, on the financials. Because people in most of those tech companies, certainly, are not building a business, what they're building is an equity play. So they're building a position. So when that does go to the liquidity event, whatever it is, an IPO or trade sale or whatever, then the real value is lost yep. Um, yep. for the customer. The real value for the employee to a large extent is lost. And I think the minute you lose sight of why you are in business and your customer becomes a forgotten afterthought that's really a, a bad place to be selling from i totally agree i think that's where you know the ethics of this come into play big time because i mean we've seen that over the last few years right the public jane john q public shareholders have been left holding the bag for a lot of SaaS companies particularly in the united states i can't speak to other markets because i live here and this is where my knowledge and experience is primarily but you know these IPOs happen, and then you look at the stock price over time, and it just plummets step back down to earth. And clearly, they just sold it, and then the fundamentals weren't there. There was a lot of hype. I think that things are coming back down to earth a little bit, but there is definitely an ethical responsibility. I think as a salesperson to ask yourself, you know, when I say you know make sure that it's working, I mean you know make sure you feel like the fun fundamentally that you're really solving problems for people, that they're excited about your product for the right reasons, and that that you know you, like the customer success thing you're talking about before. People are sticking around. It's not just that it's easy to close them on a deal, but that you're seeing, oh, they're sticking around. I'm, I'm still getting that commission payout from that deal I closed a year ago. That's cool. That means something's working. They renewed. I think those are the types of indicators we want to look towards as salespeople to feel well sleep, if, better, if, sleep better at night, right? If they renewed and um, you didn't know precisely why, then you're missing out on a lot of money. Um, yeah. Because if someone did renew, chances are there'll be other people who may not be renewing for the wrong reasons. As salespeople, I think we need to get way more intelligent. We need to be looking for unmet demand. We need to look for unidentified opportunity. We need to be looking for the uh, disappointment that people are feeling uh, with their current setup and yeah. look for those gaps because there are plenty of non-buyers who could be buyers. And that's where I think salespeople, the real salespeople will find their niche. Uh, it's in being able to join the dots and connect the unconnect, seemingly unconnected in the buyer's mind and create hybrid solutions that are fit for purpose and bringing the right people together at the right time. I think that's where um, the best salespeople will end up because yep. they'll be coordinating and yep. they'll be working with the customer, helping them execute their strategy. And that's what I think sales should be. But it's become um, very transactional, very order-taking. 
And yeah. customers, I don't think customers like it, which is why we've got terrible and, and another reason why we've got terrible reputation. Yeah, I'm with you on that. I'm with you on that. Absolutely. I think that if you, a lot of people end up in sales by accident. And I think at some point you have to decide, is this a craft that you want to get better at? Do you want to study? Or is it just something that you do to pay the bills? And uh, I think the people who end up in it by accident and don't commit to the craft of helping people change, really. I mean, what we're talking about when you're selling someone a product that works, that you're helping them change how they work, how they live, that requires a lot of thinking, a lot of empathy, a lot of work to do that effectively. You know, you can't just stumble around through that and be half distracted with 17 different tabs on a Zoom call and and think that you're going to help someone, you know, to help a hundred million dollar organization change how they do things. You know, it just it doesn't work like that. I, I don't think many salespeople are really trying to help. And it's such a yeah. shame because it's such it's an incredibly satisfying role. Yeah. Because where, where you are making that kind of contribution and it has a lasting effect for years or decades after. You know, I, I've got clients who come back to me after 12, 15 years to say what an effect um, the work that we did together had. And that is the most satisfying thing that I you know that ever happens in my life. But it happens regularly now because you put the time in, you put the consistency in, and you delivered the uh, the outcome. Because people don't th- People forget, people don't buy your product or service. They pay for the outcome and they rent it. They don't buy it outright ever. They just rent it for as long as it's delivering what they intended. And the moment it doesn't, that's where they make space for someone else. And you know, in the same example with this ATEX and the fee, that suddenly created um, a moment where they had to reconsider. They would have probably quite happily carried on if the, um, the private equity hadn't hiked it up. Yep. That's where I feel like the traditional sales and marketing tactics and engines, you you need to have them in place because every once in a while, some shift will happen. And in those moments, you can get away with lower quality work because, because there's this window of opportunity where it's just so obvious that someone needs what you do. Most of the time, that's not true. And I think most of our conversation has been talking about that. 98% of the time where you have to do more than that. But every once in a while, it is true. Something happens, a regulation changes, a competitor goes under, an acquisition happens, uh, an acquisition doesn't happen, whatever. Well, then that's I think, 5% you know, that are in the market to buy your stuff today. But you, you touched on it earlier, and I want to finish on this, which is the, uh, the emphasis on focus on your medium-term pipeline. The yeah. middle of the funnel is the most neglected part of the funnel. Because the CRM uh, goes from, is this going into as an entry? And the moment it does, what's the close date? And the emphasis goes from pipeline to close. And the middle of the funnel is where all the money is, the nurturing. And uh, what I'd like to discuss on uh, as the final point, Harris, is how you can use inbound and outbound to nurture a solid medium-term pipeline and build resilience and predictability into the forecast. Yeah, that's a huge topic. I think that when you talk about, I'm with you, I'm 100%. I think that you're absolutely right. So you have, let's just say, three stages of buyers, people who are like not ready at all, people who are starting to think about it, and then people who are ready to buy. The people who are starting to think about it, maybe they get involved in your process, they reach out, they share a handful of data points that you can use to update your CRM. So you know, we have a client who makes software for 
breweries and distilleries and wineries. So one data point that they that's relevant in that world is how much beer do you make? How much beer do you brew? Right. Very like rudimentary way of doing this would be, oh, they 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 make enough beer, but they say they're not ready right now. We're just gonna say that they're not ready and then just like leave it alone. And then maybe marketing will send them emails down the road or something like that. But a more proactive seller who is not just an order taker, you know, they would in this example, update the volume, but also then think about the life of that brewery, right? So if you're thinking about their like tax season or whatever, you know, maybe talk to marketing or see if marketing has any assets about how they calculate their tax liability for selling across different jurisdictions, or if they have a direct consumer versus selling through channels. And if there's a certain time of the year when those channel partners are going to be buying more, that's where, you know, you could lean on maybe customer success team for insight and say, Hey, when tax season comes up, what are the types of problems that people, why do people choose our thing? What what do they go to for us when tax season comes around and they're using our tool? How much easier is it for them to calculate their liability? And those are the types of case studies and examples that you would then want to share sort of strategically. Maybe there's some seasonality in your business or, you know, their harvest is over or there's a major industry trade show coming up. You know, you can use these outbound tactics and copywriting principles to re-engage an existing contact and just say, hey, are you going to be at the beer festival, you know, that's going to be taking place in October because our team is going to be there and we'd be love, we'd be happy to treat you. Those are some of the highest performing campaigns that we've done, by the way, is where there's an existing relationship and there is a like physical, like in-person event that's happening. And it's just a very low, simple ask of just like, Hey, are you going to be there? Can we, can we take care of lunch for you? What do you think? Um, So those are the types of things I think that are possible, but you have to have the right systems and you have to have spent time thinking about how your customer operates. You can't just view them as like um, just transactional, like, you know, like you were saying earlier. We've got to get away from being transactional and really focus on bringing value on every touch. Because if you don't, then you're just an interruption and they're busy. They don't need to be interrupted with your selfish (laughs) self-interest. Yeah. They just don't have time for it. They'll just ignore you. They'll just ignore you. They just won't respond. You know, and then like you said earlier, you know, these really negative experiences with brands where you say, you know, I don't know if I ever want to work with them. <laughs> and you then tell other people. Yeah, right. Hey, uh, they're well, annoying. They're frustrating. Yeah, and yeah. I, I, I've told this story many times. So there must be at least 50,000 people who know about the piss poor service I got from one tell. Um, my wife was pregnant with our second child. I was cooking supper. This fellow phoned me up to save me six pounds 20 a year. And when I told him that I'd be happy to take the call, but another time he carried on and carried on and carried on. So in the end, I hung up and I'd never work with them again. Wow. Because they irritated me. Now, it's not rational. If they had a good product, should I look at it? Probably. But human beings are not rational. We are emotional creatures who happen to use reason and logic as a means of justifying our mostly irrational decisions. (laughs) I'm sure they rude the day they messed with Marcus. (laughs) You know, the problem is it's so hard to quantify the cost of that. But as a salesperson, you do have that responsibility. You do represent the brand. The way you act represents the brand. And it represents your personal reputation as well. I think it goes deeper than that. Um, If someone is... um, a senior executive responsible for 100 million PL, they're responsible for 50 grand an hour. 
And if you don't turn up and deliver 50 grand's worth of value, you've wasted their time. So how do you, you've really got to think deeply before you turn up, you've got to prepare. And, you know, if, if someone's booked a meeting or you booked a meeting, don't squander that. Someone's let you into their diary. They're busy, respect it and treat their time as if it's precious. So be prepared. That's an important takeaway. Absolutely. Harris, how can people get hold of you? They can find me on LinkedIn. Uh, My name is Harris Kenny, H-A-R-R-I-S-K-E-N-N-Y. And frankly, if someone's listening to the Inquisitor podcast, they are happy to email me as well. My email is harris at introcrm.com. I love talking about this stuff. It's been a privilege being on the show. I'm always interested in learning about new tools. I've changed the way I do things every couple of months. So I'm always, always open to new ideas. And uh, if I said something that was hilariously outdated or wrong, please tell me it will not hurt my feelings. I would love to know what I could be doing better. <laughs> Excellent. One final question then. You've got a golden ticket and you can go back and whisper in the ear of the idiot Harris, age 23. Uh, what <laughs> one bit of advice would you give him that he would probably have ignored? <laughs> That's a great, great finishing question. Let's see. So. I think the most important thing that I would have done would have been to look outside of my organization more for ideas and to try to learn more from what other people were doing. I was very focused on my job, my boss, and I was served well by that. And in a sense, you know, I I learned and I would get promoted. And I think that I've learned so much since going out on my own. And I'm sure, you know, you've had this experience as well. I just feel like if I had started learning at the rate I'm learning now, earlier in my career, I would have been in a really different place. But you also have to learn and then get experience. So you need a little bit of both. But I would have tried to think about ways to accelerate my learning somehow earlier by learning from other people and not just sort of saying, well, my boss said it's okay to do it this way. So let me just do it this way. Because I've I've found that since going out on my own, I you know, clients don't care. It's really about results. And so if something yeah. isn't working, we'll end work. And then I got to go back to the drawing board and say, wow, that, that didn't work at all. What, what can I do better next time? <laughs> Excellent. Harris, thank you very much. Thank you for the opportunity. So this is Marcus Caffey signing off once again from the Inquisitor podcast. If you want to get hold of me, Marcus at laughs-last.com. There'll be a link in the blurb if you want to talk to me about coaching and training. In the meantime, if you've enjoyed this, then please like, comment, share, and subscribe, and um, tag somebody who'd benefit from listening to the conversation. In the meantime, stay safe and happy selling. Bye-bye.